believing the Bible. Uh, these, I don't know how many lessons we've done so far, five or so, uh, about the Bible. And uh, hopefully you've enjoyed it somewhat uh, to a minute degree, hopefully more than minute. But the the purpose of it is that when we are talking to somebody, that's whether they're atheist, agnostic, or it doesn't even have to be that, you know, of another faith um, or even within our own faith, because I have met people and talked to people that struggle with the idea of the Bible being the inerrant, the perfect word of God without any mistakes, that it's God inspired, that it has not been uh, uh, marred or messed up by man because we are imperfect. And here we are supposed to write down the perfect word of God. And so we went through a lot of uh, uh, facts about the Bible, about its reliability historically, its, its reliability archaeologically, and then the process of preservation of scriptures throughout time. And we've talked about all these various things. And last week, I, I really enjoyed kind of what we talked about last week, uh, just the science in the Bible. That, you know, when some people try to brush off the Bible as a fanciful mythological piece of literature that was just kind of whip, whip, ripped, uh, uh, whipped together to uh, kind of deceive people, it's just simply not so. The Bible is so accurate in so many areas that if someone was carelessly doing something, they, they would have been caught with a lot of errors and inconsistencies and falsehoods inside of its documentation. But that is simply not found. And we found last week all these scientific facts concerning health that they did not know 3,500 years ago. But they were told by God to write those things down and to apply them and practice them. And there is a reason why the Jews, the Hebrews, outgrew, outpaced any other nation in number. And they just strengthened and grew because they were living by a different code of ethics. And that code of ethics is now verifiably understood that what they were doing was hygienically proper and correct. But they had no idea about vitamin K and uh, what do we, I can't remember the name of the word now is uh, prothrombin or whatever. Talking about blood coagulation. They didn't know anything about uh, the difference between uh, um, stagnant water in a bowl versus running water. But God specifically told them to wash their hands in running water. And uh, we talked about doctor practices, you know, not not until recent, you know, uh, century that they discover that doctors use running water to clean their hands, not the same dish after they deal with a dead body. Now go to the birthing room where 30 percent of women were dying, giving birth by infection. But after this Jewish man basically practiced Jewish law in his room, it went down to 3% or 2% of uh, uh, fatality rate in the birthing room. It's just incredible when you consider all that. And so we would think as believers here, surely that's going to convert somebody. Surely they're going to believe because the facts are there in front of them. But even with all this historical re reliability that we went through, after going through all this archaeological evidence, after going through all the process and preservation of manuscripts, there's still going to be the denouncing of the Bible as the inspired, perfect word of God. You cannot intellectually convert somebody. Now, you can cause them to contemplate, to think, to begin to, you know, register some thoughts. But we do not convert people by science. We do not convert people with with uh, 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 just history and archaeology, though it can help them to consider before just 
brushing the Bible aside in a pile of other Greek, Greek mythological books. Um, I, I read a story of a man who was once convinced that he was dead. And so he would constantly be in an argument with his wife, telling her, no, I'm dead. And so she would have to, you know, go through this difficult conversation saying, no, you're not dead. You are alive. And he would fight with her over and over. No, I am a dead man. I'm a dead person. And so finally she convinced her dead husband to go seek medical, uh, professional mental help. And so he visited this this medical professional, and they spent hours and hours roundabout having this discussion as he's trying to convince the medical professional that he is dead. And finally, the medical professional is able to capture his attention and to get him to consider the facts of that dead people do not have blood. They don't bleed. The blood dries up. It's done. It's gone. And so finally, the so-called dead man agreed that that is scientific. Living people bleed. Dying people don't have bleeding after they have died. And so at that point, the medical doctor stuck a needle in the man's arm and began to draw blood. And so the doctor said, see, look, you have blood. And to which the man replied, my God, it's a miracle. Dead men bleed. It's just there's some people like that. No matter all the evidences that you lay before them, it still won't be enough for them to walk away from their worldview. And there are people that they may say that they don't believe in God, they don't believe in religion, but their worldview is their religion. It is their God. It is their commitment. And so... I, I will address a little bit about something here is that a major hurdle that we as uh, a Bible believing Christians face, even though we went through the past five weeks of, of uh, convincing evidences that people need to consider about the Bible as it being reliable and being uh, 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 co- consistent and being scientific and being proven, there's still a hurdle that people wrestle with, and that is the miraculous. Because we can scientifically show some things concerning people's health in the Bible, the laws, the dietary laws, etc. We can show all the how things are in chronological order. We can show that the the higher uh, the chronology of kings and their specific names to get people to consider that there was a lot of detail in the Bible where you could not make it up. It had to be true. But when you start talking about Red Sea splitting. When you start talking about the dead coming back to life, when you start talking about spit applied into dirt and put in the sockets of man and the eyes opening and them seeing or sticking a finger in an ear and praying that the ears are open. You're going to have a hurdle because that doesn't make a lick of sense scientifically, we would say. And so people have a struggle with faith and they have a struggle with the miraculous, but People operate every day concerning faith. Just because you do not understand something does not mean that it is not true. For instance, if you ever travel in an airplane, the majority of people do not understand all of aerodynamics, but they, by faith, get onto this this device that weighs hundreds of thousands of pounds 
that that doesn't flap wings and all of a sudden there's fire and fuel and propulsion and also now you're up in the air 10,000 feet, 20,000 feet, whatever it is, that that takes a a level of trust in blind faith. Or even if you understood that, you're walking into a vehicle, an airplane, which you do not know who the airline pilot is. You don't know them personally. You don't know nothing about them. You're just trusting the system of the aviation system that, This man has his credentials that he can't just walk into the plane, sit at that plane. And, you know, they you you are trusting. So everyone lives by faith because no man on earth understands all things. So there are levels of trust and faith. And so people that do not believe in the Bible look at us as inferior because we don't. They would say you don't understand all of science. You don't understand all of biology, chemistry, whatever field of uh, perfection. But here here be a, a silly example, the lottery, okay? Uh, if, if, if you were hearing on the radio or exposed to uh, a, a television and it, it says that the lottery numbers are 5, 6, 3, 5, 8, 2, 9, 3, and 6, and they would say these are the winning numbers, what, that would take a level of faith and trust that those are the winning numbers. And why would you believe those are the winning numbers? Because for that series of numbers I just rattled off, for that to be the winning number is a millionth of a mil- one in a millionth of a millionth of a millionth of a chance. It's impo- almost practically impossible, but it is possible to a very nth degree. One in a millionth of a millionth of a millionth of a chance. But why would you believe it? And the person would believe it because it's been reported by the news or the source that has been deemed reliable over a certain period of time. And so the resurrection would be considered improbable. But why do we believe it? It's been reported by apostles and other credible witnesses and contemporaries of that day and age that were deemed reliable. And that source at that time completely could have been shut down, denounced, eradicated, disappeared. But in the very day, and we talked, uh, I think, maybe two or three lessons ago about outside sources that were not Christians that documented and conversed and sourced the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so there is a sense of reliability. There's an atheistic uh, philosopher named Michael Roos. And here's what he said. Creationists believe the world started miraculously. And here's what he, he goes on to say. But miracles lie outside of science, which by definition deals with the natural, the repeatable, that which is governed by law. So he basically is kind of trying to diminish or downplay creation, creationist worldview that God spoke the world into existence and created it because it that that would take a miracle and miracles operate outside of science. And um, but you got to notice the statement that he makes. He does not say that miracles contradict science, but they lie outside of science. So to believe in the miraculous, the supernatural, people like to state that is not science. That is not possible. Miracles in science may seem to contradict but the fact of the matter, that statement that atheists made is true. Miracles are outside. They lie outside of science. It is that which science cannot repeat. It is not that it's that which man cannot reproduce by self. It dwells in the outside of man, 
outside the laws of nature. You know, I, you've heard me state this before. If I if I had a, I don't have a ball here, but here to pick up this tissue box, that the law of gravity teaches us, you know, basically what goes up must come down. And that when I release this box in the air, it's going to hit that ground. That is science. That is repeatable. That is going to occur every time. And so I threw it up here in just a second, and it's going to hit the ground because that's what science teaches But why didn't it hit the ground that time? Because I interrupted it. And that is what the miraculous is. That is what the supernatural is, is what we would call divine intervention. Natural law teaches us that gravity will bring this down to the ground. But divine intervention is this is the law, but God intervenes. And that is what makes a miracle is that God has intervened in the law that he already set in nature and set in motion. And God, as the creator, can do that. And we as humans do that as well. Even if you wanted to have it in a natural discussion, uh, I'm gonna, probably going to mess up these two elements, but and Brother Dave probably could correct this. But I, I want to say if you mix oxygen, and I think it's potassium or phosphate together, something along those lines, it combusts. It, it bursts into flames. But none of us here right now are bursting into flames, though we have both of those elements inside of us. That is not a contradiction to science. There is an intervention happening within our body that keeps those elements from exploding within us. So it is that's in the natural way for us to understand that term. So it is with God. But perhaps two of the greatest miracles that are rejected by nonbelievers or doubters and even even Christians, there, there are whole segments of Christianity that denounced the virgin birth. It was maybe like a, a few Easter's ago. I preached about uh, uh, a third of Christians, do, uh, a third of pastors of all denominations do not believe in the literal virgin birth or the literal resurrection. Now, that's crazy to me. That's absolutely crazy that there are pastors leading whole congregations teaching them with the belief and persuasion that the virgin birth and the resurrection is just this symbolic imagery. It's not literal. When you read and study 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul says, without the resurrection, we are of all men most miserable and all the apostles are liars. (laughs) So I, I don't know how one could come to terms or grips with that, but there are people that do that. But two miracles, and I just stated them, the virgin birth and the resurrection. You have people uh, concerning the, the Red Sea and the plagues and uh, fire from heaven and great stones, things like that. There are naturalists that try to explain it away by saying there are natural phenomenons that can prove these scriptures to be true, but they were not miraculous. It was just nature and motion. There are people that believe that a wind at 70 miles an hour blew across the Red Sea and that part of the Red Sea was literally just, you know, a couple feet deep that, you know, you could walk across it and you're only ankle and knee deep. And that's how they crossed the Red Sea. And so they, you know, they, they, they justify that saying that's how it was done. But the miraculous part of that is if that is the case, if it was a natural occurrence and the wind blew and people walked across dry ground ankle deep, what a miracle that God would draw uh, drown a whole army of Pharaoh with ankle deep water. So you, you can't remove the miracle either way, but that's neither here nor there. But as I mentioned, the two greatest miracles that a lot of people 
struggle with, but at the same time, they are the foundation and the cornerstone of us as believers is the virgin birth and the resurrection because you cannot naturally explain that away. You could try to say, well, these great stones, what it was, it was just, it was really intense weather and it was hail and, you know, it was maybe a sunny day and the sun reflecting off the hail balls falling down, look like fire and blah, blah. The people can say whatever they want, but you cannot explain away a virgin birth and a resurrection. Therefore, people write it off and saying, that is why I cannot be a Christian because of those two elements. You've shown me, and I, I, I was, I can't remember the man's name. I didn't jot it down here, but I was reading through uh, uh, individuals that basically all the evidence, these were professors in, in colleges and universities, that they, they saw all the evidence that we went over these past five weeks as irrefutable. That is the truth. That, that you can't argue with that. But because of a virgin birth and because of a resurrection, a resurrected Savior, they will not embrace it because that it, that is not possible. Okay, so facts don't necessarily convert, and the supernatural doesn't necessarily convert. As much as we want to get all this information down that we talked about and share it with someone, and I I implore you, please do that. Get some of that in your head. Have that reference source so you can help people along the way. But at the end of the day, that still doesn't necessarily convert. And Jesus isn't about us being come these uh, apologists that are able to uh, convert people scientifically. That's not how he trained and raised his disciples. In fact, he was shocked by some people that believed in him because of a miraculous sign. Nathaniel and Philip, when Jesus basically told him, I saw you underneath that tree when I was in even there. Nathaniel says, wow, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You know, you're, 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 you're the Messiah or whatever he said. And, um, and he says, because of that, you believe me? Like Jesus was like, well, I was hoping you'd believe me for something more than that. Not just a sign, but perhaps faith and trust. Or, or how about when Jesus said a wicked in an adulterous generation looks for a sign. Jesus was not into trying to convert people through signs, though he did use the miraculous to get people's attention and to prove that he was a son of God and had the capacity to forgive sins. And the same thing with the apostles as well. But at the end of the day, that is not what necessarily is going to convert people for all of Egypt saw the 10 plagues. But Pharaoh didn't convert. Or how about Jezebel, Ahab? They saw fire fall from heaven, and they saw their 400 prophets or whatever it was completely eradicated. But Jezebel didn't convert at that point. Or how about the Pharisees that stood in the very room of Jesus, and a man comes down from the ceiling. Jesus says, I forgive your sins. They're like, you can't do that. And he says, I'll show you that I can do it. Take, arise, take up thy bed, and walk. And the man who never walked before now stands up, takes up his bed, and walks out of the place. But none of those Pharisees converted. So is it's not just the miraculous that converts and it's not just facts that convert people still at the end of the day can refuse. So at the end of the day, there must be an open and a hungry heart that is willing to trust by faith. Proverbs three, five, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not to thy own understanding. You can't convert people through understanding. You can give them something to try to comprehend or to understand, but understanding is not conversion. That basically is revelation to maybe how to apply certain things in their lives, but the initial walk with God is one of faith. Faith unlocks everything. 
Faith believes the existence of God by whom all things exist. I'll say it again. Faith believes the existence of God by whom all things exist. You cannot put under a microscope God. You could put his creation under that microscope and you could begin to see how someone would respond to that and begin to see through the microscopic eye the order, the structure, the design, the intelligence that does not appear to be random there. But at that same microscope, you have scientists that are believers and scientists that are unbelievers because they're looking through that microscope in a different worldview. Hebrews 11, 1 through 6. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith is this invisible thing. And by it, elders obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear, which that is a scientific statement now that people see that there was some invisible cosmic things that occurred is what some evolutionists or Big Bang theorists would say. But the Bible already spoke that. But we do not believe that it was a random occurrence. We believe it was an intelligent design by God himself. And verse 6 says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. So we can have all the facts down, but without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone that comes to God must believe that he is. And he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Faith is the founding element of what it's going to take to, to, to come to God. There are lots of evidences around that that can help someone point their eyes towards God. But to get to the center of where it's all at, it's faith that unlocks everything. Look at Ephesians 2, 7 through 10, familiar portion of Scripture. Uh, scripture that in the ages to come, Jesus, he might, or God, uh, that in the ages to come, he might show forth the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. So God's word here says there is a time to come that God wants to show his riches of grace toward us through Christ Jesus. And we know this portion of scripture, verse 8, for by grace through faith, that's how we are saved. Not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not of us showing physical, archaeological evidence. It's not of us putting things under a microscope to save somebody. Because at the end of the day, you could put everything under the microscope. You could put everything in the inventory of archaeology and libraries, all the canon of history. You could do all of that. But it's faith that's going to bring someone to salvation. Faith is the active ingredient which makes all things work. Repentance doesn't work without faith. Baptism doesn't work without faith. Receiving the Holy Ghost is impossible without faith. Faith is the active, invisible ingredient that we cannot twist someone's arm. Something has to spur within someone, and they have to, they got to forsake all logic, forsake all reason, and by faith step out and say, God, you are, and I believe. Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. So the only way to feed someone faith is the more and more we can discuss the word, it increases the probability of them getting faith. There's people who read and study the word and they don't believe the word. They're trying to disprove the word. But the more exposure to the word, the increased probability 
that they're going to have where faith can pierce through a hard heart. That's why it's important that we keep being word people, that we keep bringing up the word, talking about the word, the facts of the word, the faith behind the word. Psalm 19, 7 says, because the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It is the word of God that converts souls, not us going through all. I enjoyed the past five weeks of being nerds. I had a fun time doing that. But still, at the end of the day, it's the word that converts the soul. It's the word that's going to give somebody faith to believe. They may not initially believe, but the more exposure and the more word you have in you and the more word you live out, the more chance is going to pierce through to them. Look at Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is quick or alive. It's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints of the marrow. It's a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, someone once said, read the red, it will mess with your head. And you're talking about the words of Jesus. The more exposure to those words, the words are not merely words. We believe they are inspired or God breathed, as Paul told Timothy. And so that means the more we discuss it with somebody that is a non-believer or struggling, it increases the chances that the breath of God, the breath of the Spirit, move upon them and begin to cut through that calloused heart and that calloused mind. Acts 9, 8, or 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says this, In whom the God of this world, that's about Satan, has blinded the minds of them which believe not. So that's what this world is doing right now. Every systematic structure of education is set up in that type of manner in order to get people to be blind to the gospel and blind to truth and blind to faith and try to prop up science, so-called, and evolution and theories and philosophies and, and all this kind of stuff to try to get people to see this as foolish, which, by the way, it is. The Bible itself states that, saying God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, okay? But that's what this world's doing, to try to get people in pride and arrogance to look at that as stupid and to walk away from it and to downplay it. But the more word that we allow to go forth, the more conversion we will see. Because the Bible says, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So if we would let the word shine to somebody who struggles with the word and keep letting that light shine, eventually the light will penetrate. And when that light begins to break through to that non-believer that has a blind mind that does not believe, the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus will make them a believer. Here's a case and example. Acts chapter 9, the apostle Paul. This man has been exposed to create Christianity for who knows how many years he's seen it. And he gets so worked up, he begins to persecute it. And he's attacking it. He knows what Christianity is all about. That's why he's attacking it. He's a one oneness terrorist. And so he is attacking and, and all of a sudden he sees another Christian and who he's given the thumbs up and approval. And he, hold, he holds everyone's jacket while they go kill Stephen. But while Stephen is being killed, he practices what the word instilled to him was. And that is to turn the other cheek and to pray for those that persecute you and bless those that despitefully use you. And he began to pray what Jesus prayed. Forgive them. They do not know what they do. Lay not this transgression upon them. And when Paul saw that, something pierced through. Something made its way through into his mind. 
And he couldn't shake it, though he was on the way on the road to Damascus to persecute and to kill more. So I believe something significant happened that day that he never saw before. It was not just words he heard. It was words lived out. And the anointing of that moment began to work on his heart. And that's why in Acts nine eighteen. The Bible says when he stood before Ananias after he heard the voice of Jesus and Ananias prayed for him, scales came off of his eyes. And that's what I believe happens when people are exposed to word and exposed to people who live out the word. Eventually, the scales will come off their eyes and say, this is more than just a book. There's something breathed into these people. There's something living about this document that's not like any other document, not like any other magazine, not like any other philosophy. And all of a sudden, the the mind that was blinded has now been illuminated by the word. And now the scales have come off and they can see clearly. That is what we want to see. That's what we pray. Like Jesus said in John 6, 44, no man can come to God unless the Father, the Spirit, draws him that's why we pray the word and that's why we live the word we pray god draw people god help me to reach people and so when we pray god draws people and we come in contact with those people we are effective and efficient in pulling those people in romans chapter one i'm just about done here i'm looking at the time we're right on time romans chapter one i want to read through a long portion of scripture uh chapter one verse 21 through 32 Paul or verse 19, I'm sorry, 19 through 32. Here's what Paul says, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. So Paul says it's not just the external that we use to convince people. Everybody has an internal element that God put inside of them to give them an awareness of God. If you want to call it a God, a God space, you know, it, it say it's a square and it's right here and there's nothing else that can complete this heart, this spirit, this man, until that square enters in there or that circle. And you could put a triangle, but that triangle isn't going to fit in that circle. You could put a trapezoid, but that trapezoid is not going to fit in that circle. Only that one thing that's, that, that's missing that you're longing for until you find it will bring completion, will bring wholeness. And that's what Paul says, that it's man. there's a conscience inside of everyone. Psalm 14, 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. For a fool to say there is no God means he has to contemplate the counterstatement, there is a God. And so everybody at one point has registered the thought that there is or there is not a being outside of this world that is greater and superior by whom all things are made. And God put that inside of us. And so... Paul goes on saying here, verse 19, God has showed it to them. Verse 20, here's some of the ways God shows to people that there is a God. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So the things that are made, this physical surrounding is to help people understand this came from somewhere. How did it come to be? Where did it come from? Okay, and the Bible says God made this even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Nobody will be with an excuse in heaven. Everybody will stand before God and he will judge them justly because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, meaning they knew that there was this plausibility. But the Bible says they decided not to glorify him and they weren't thankful. They became vain in their imagination, foolish in their heart, and it was darkened. They begin to profess themselves to be wise But becoming professors, they became fools. 
and change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man and to birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. So this is talking about idol worship, but we can we can convert that missing void in our heart, that God spot, and we can convert it to anything. It doesn't have to be a golden image that we get on all fours to and bow to. So God gives them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts. And that's the thing. It's that worldview, knowing that if this is true, then I need to give up the lust of my heart. Because that is the beauty, so-called, of not being a believer, of taking the word of God literally, that I can do whatever I want, and there is no effect consequentially outside of my life when I die. But when you know there is a God, then all of a sudden there's a fear that grips you. And so you do your dead level best to say there is no God. And instead of giving up your lust, the Bible says they give into their lust to their own hearts. And they begin to dishonor their bodies between themselves. So look at the day and age that we live in. Are people honoring or dishonoring their bodies between themselves? Are people changing the truth of God into a lie? Verse 25. Are they worshiping and serving the creature more than the creator? I mean... There's almost like this, this, not almost, there is this whole movement of elevating the life of an animal greater than the life of a human. An embryo of an animal, it, for farmers that are, are you know, uh, in, inseminating cows, they have to pay taxes and they're responsible for those unborn fetuses, if that's the correct terminology for a cow. They, that, that counts as life and the government taxes for it. But humans... You have that, it's not life. You could still abort it if you want to. That's, that's, that's the way our world is right now, worshiping the creature more than the creator. Look at verse 26. So for this very reason, this is what God does when man begins to get to that place. God gives them up to vile affections, women changing the natural use of that which is against nature. Likewise, the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burning in their lust one towards another, men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. So as as this this theory of science and evolutionism is being elevated, this very thing the scripture declared would happen is happening because there's a lifestyle being elevated and then there's another lifestyle being persecuted. That is what the Bible declared ever before this America was founded. Verse 29 says this is what's going to happen when people start living that way. Verse 28 So if they don't want to retain God in their knowledge, God gives them up to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And they will be like this, filled with unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents without understanding, covenant breakers without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. So God, here we, here we got a word written 2,000 years ago saying, if this is what you're going to do with the thought of God and having faith in that God, this is going to be the effect and the consequence. So let's see, 2,000 years ago, were they, were, were they just shooting from the hip? Were they just a wild guess? Or did actually God speak to man and say, look, I'll show you what will happen when you remove me out of your theories and your thoughts and your theology. And what I just read right now is all of everything Hollywood in this world is. It is those things. 
That is what celebrated, lived, and practiced in our world today. Last portion of scripture, I'm done at 755. Luke 1, 15 through 17. This is the word of God talking about John the Baptist as he's going to be given this destiny and preparing the way of Jesus Christ. And here's what the angel of the Lord says to Zechariah. John the Baptist shall be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That is our job. That is our call is that we make ready a people prepared for the Lord. We almost have the calling of a John the Baptist on us to be full of the Holy Ghost not given into the substance of this world, wine, alcohol, and anything else that would cause us to lose our sober-mindedness. And to do everything we can at our dead-level best effort with the help of the Holy Ghost to make people ready for Jesus. Not everyone believed John the Baptist. Not everyone liked John the Baptist. But there were some people that were willing. It It wasn't their understanding because they looked and they saw a guy, here's some guy in some nasty clothes. He's got locusts for breath, and he's just sticky like honey. There, he's got wild hair. There ain't no way that's going to be my pastor. <laughs> but those people didn't follow him on understanding, but by faith they listened, and they followed Jesus after he pointed the way to them. All the facts can point to God, but only faith can take you to God. Let's stand together. All the facts can point to God, but only faith can take you to God. I want us to be as educated as possible in every way we can train ourselves to answer people's questions and to provide insights to get them to consider and contemplate things. But if they reject it, you've done what you can. You just need to pray that God would give them faith to step out because it is by faith at the end of the day. That's the only reason why we're even a part of this. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this study, God. And I pray that we do everything we can to be effective, efficient witnesses. But at the end of it all, Jesus, people have to have faith. And I pray, God, that we would rightly divide the word of truth and use the word of God because it is the word that converts the soul. God, it is the word that builds faith. And I pray, God, that we handle the word of truth correctly and that we can be efficient with it, Jesus, and begin to see people's faith rise and build. And Lord, to see them begin to believe and to reach out, God, for no man can repent unless he believes. And baptism is nothing if they don't have faith and belief in it. And you cannot receive the spirit without faith. God, I pray that there would be a baptism of faith in Watertown, South Dakota. I am believing Lord, for an increase of faith in this area, Jesus, that people would forsake the, uh, the, the traditions and people would forsake their worldview. And by faith, they would step out and say, I want what the word has declared. God is God and I am not. I will step out and I will believe in Jesus name. Everyone say in Jesus name. God bless you. You're dismissed in Jesus name. Thank you for coming to Bible study.